So this is the uh, final installment that we'll be in with Luke, uh, and we're going to take a brief break after this and get into the Psalms during the summer. Um, but I'm hoping that we're going to be able to finish off uh, Luke with this story. I think that this is a very fitting place to end our study uh, in this initial burst. So this would be week 10 so far that we're in Luke. Um, and this is just a fitting place to end because all of Luke has been building to this point. All of Luke has been building to this story, to this narrative, to this account of who this child is. But before we get started, I want to remind you of something that Luke introduces here in this story, which is a little bit of history. He says in verse 1 that these are the days of Caesar Augustus and a man named Quirinius. Now remember Luke in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he introduced himself as a historian and as a theologian. And so far, he's been going back and forth between introducing us to theology and teaching. He's been telling Theophilus about who God is and what he's doing in redemptive history. But also, Luke is telling us an accurate historical account. He tells Theophilus he set about to make an orderly account of the things that have been made known. So Luke here is fulfilling his role as a historian. In fact, he's such an accurate historian that people still reference the Gospel of Luke when they're digging through and trying to find this history. And when they try to contradict the Gospel of Luke and they try to find out when this census was exactly, they can find no contradictions to this Gospel account. In fact, Luke is probably the most accurate first-hand account of this time period and this census. But before we're introduced to Caesar, I want to introduce you to someone who you've hopefully learned about in school, which is a guy named Julius Caesar. He's the Caesar who precedes Caesar Augustus. And Julius Caesar is the one who is famously assassinated in the Senate, betrayed by his right-hand men. And he is the Caesar who is stabbed to death and then there is, hopefully you learned this, there is the assassination, and then uh, there's a triumvirate that takes over. You have Mark Antony, you have a man named Octavian, the young Octavian, and then you have Leopidus. And this forms the first triumvirate, and after Caesar falls, Rome is in chaos. And the emperor and the empire is going to be divided, but these three form the triumvirate, and they seek to reestablish peace in Rome. And they do so successfully, but then Leopidus falls, and he loses his seat of power, and now it's between the young Octavian and Mark Antony to decide how they're going to divide the kingdom. And Mark Antony goes down to Egypt and rallies Cleopatra and her troops. And then he squares off against Octavian. And finally, they meet in this great uh, sea battle known as Actium. And that is where Mark Antony ultimately falls and yields the empire to Octavian. That is a decisive victory for Octavian. And Octavian then goes from that victory to the Senate, to the empire, and is declared the new Caesar. And they change his name from Octavian to Augustus. His name now is Caesar, the title emperor, and Augustus, which means revered one. He is claiming a divine title with this name change. He is claiming to be a deity. Caesar Augustus is the man Octavian. And when he takes power, he takes control, he seeks to make himself out to be a god. And he does so successfully. In fact, Octavian establishes one of the most peaceful times in the Roman Empire. This is something you might have heard of as the Pax Romana. This is a time of great peace, great splendor in the empire. He establishes and builds all the Roman highways that will later be used by the apostles to spread the gospel out through all the known world. And it is in this time period in history that Luke is writing this gospel account and telling us about the birth of another king who we're going to be introduced to shortly. The story that we have here in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, is a story of contrasts. You have a few main contrasts that are told and contradicted throughout the whole story. The first contrast is the contrast of the two kings that we're going to learn about. The second contrast is the contrast of the two different worlds that collide, starting in verse 8. And then finally, you have the contrast of the two different responses. The response of the shepherds and the response of the Bethlehem natives. This story of contrast is telling us about the man Christ Jesus who is incarnate here in this text. Luke is his, writing a historically accurate account and then telling us about the birth of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we're going to start off in verse 1. We're going to go verse by verse as we always do. And we're going to learn first and foremost about the two kings and the way in Luke paints a picture telling us about who God is and who Caesar is. He starts off in verse 1. He says, In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. When he says here all the world, he's talking about the entire Roman Empire. 
the whole known world. Rome owned so much of the world, they had conquered so many lands, that they can refer to it as the whole world. And Caesar Augustus is the most powerful man in history at this point. He has an entire empire, all the Roman soldiers, all the Roman armies, all the resources of Rome at his disposal. And from his mouth, when he speaks, they move. And when he speaks, he speaks a decree. And he says, I want everyone under our empire to be registered. And the reason for the census, the reason he wants them to be registered, is so they can tax the citizens. They want count of all who they've conquered, all who they rule over, so that these people can pay tribute to Rome. Caesar Augustus makes a decree, and out from his mouth, he makes a decree, he writes this, and everyone follows along according to his will. And yet, although it is out of the mouth of Caesar that this decree comes, it is according to the will of God that the decree is made. It is according to God's providence that this decree moves forward. And this is not news to us. If you've read your Bible for any length of time, you will remember the decree that Pharaoh makes when he says, kill all the children to and under in Israel. And it is through that decree that God spares Moses and saves him into the very throne of Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh raises the child who will eventually lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And then Moses is led away for a time and he comes back. And you remember the decree from Pharaoh that I will not let the people of God go. In fact, I stand opposed to this God who you represent. And then Moses comes back and plague after plague after plague. And then Pharaoh finally yields and says, I decree that the people of Israel will go out and will send them with gifts. And you'll remember again the decree of Pharaoh to chase after the people of Israel. And all the while, God has told Moses, and he tells through Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, that it is for this very reason Pharaoh was raised up to make the name of God glorious. It is the decree of Pharaoh that brings about the glory of God. You'll remember the decree that Cyrus made to Ezra. In Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus says, you know what? We're going to rebuild Jerusalem. This is not Cyrus's idea. This is God's idea to rebuild his holy city. You remember the decree of Nebuchadnezzar when he throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace because they won't bow down to him. And you'll remember the decree when they are saved from that furnace by God himself. And the decree comes out that anyone who slanders the name of this God will be torn limb from limb. For truly there is no God who saves like this God does. All the decrees of all the most powerful rulers in all of history bow the knee to the will of God. And you remember ultimately the decree of Pontius Pilate when he washes his hands and he says, do with this man as you please. And when Paul testifies in Acts chapter 2, or Peter testifies in Acts chapter 2, he says, it is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that this Jesus whom you crucified was laid up and resurrected from the grave. This is not news to us. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. There are kings and authorities in this world, but Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13 that behind every authority, every ruler, stands the God of the universe. And they would have no authority unless he had given it to them. And Jesus affirms that when he speaks to Pontius Pilate. He says, do with me as you please, because you would have no authority unless my heavenly Father gave you that authority. So Caesar, the emperor, Augustus, the revered one, he stands making himself out to be God, and yet he does the very will of the God he claims to stand in place of. And though he is trying to tax all of his people, God has a plan in place. In verse 2, it says, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, in this point in time, commentators are all over the map. They're talking about how this isn't really the first registration. Quirinius was actually governor of Syria later in his life. But remember, Luke is an accurate historian. And there were many people who questioned what registration is going on here. In fact, there's another census that takes place in Acts chapter 5 that Luke specifically addresses. And that's the census that everyone says he's referring to here. But Luke is clear. He says this is the first census. There's another census he's talking about. He's a historian. He's accurate in his account. And you can find no fault in what he says. In fact, later documents actually affirm the testimony of Luke that there were other censuses that were made at the time of Quirinius. And all go to be registered, each to his own town. Now this doesn't always happen, but remember the Jewish people are people of tradition, family. They go to be registered according to their birthright, according to their hometown. And this was always true of the Jewish people. So here Joseph, as we've learned already, is the son of David. He stands in the lineage of King David. And so when Joseph goes, he goes to the home of David, where David was born, 
in Bethlehem. In chapter four, or sorry, in verse four, it says, and Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David. And he goes to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth. That's where they're native to. And you'll remember that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Jesus, or God testifies through his prophet that the son who he will raise up will be an offspring from Bethlehem. It will be the ancient of days from Bethlehem. And so here we're left. Remember, we've already been introduced to Jesus and we're wondering how is this couple from Nazareth going to birth a child in Bethlehem? And right on the eve of when Jesus is to be born, the census comes out and Joseph makes the trip with his young wife and they go up from Galilee, up from Nazareth, into Judea, into Bethlehem. Why? Ultimately because God said so. God declares what he's going to have happen. In fact, in, cha- in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it reads like this. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. The ancient of days is referenced in Daniel chapter 7, three different times, and it's specifically referring to God when Daniel talks about him. So here we have Micah and Daniel prophesying together about this one who is to be the ancient of days, God himself, who is going to rule over the people of Israel, and he will be born from Bethlehem. And it is for this reason, for this prophecy to be fulfilled, that Luke records this account. Because he wants us to know that what the prophets said came true. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is from the beginning, from ancient of days. Although he is here manifest in bodily form, we know that he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God, and no one can say that he is not God. All of Scripture testifies to this. He is divine. He is the very Lord. Verse 6 reads, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You'll remember that when Elizabeth gives birth, the preface is that when her time came, she gave birth. And here in verse 6, it says, And when the fullness of time came for her to give birth, she gave birth. And Mary brings forth her son. And as Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. In the fullness of time, according to the definite plan of God, his plan sets in motion and Mary delivers Jesus at the exact time when God planned for him to do so. And we've already met Caesar Augustus, the man claiming to be king, the first king, and now we meet the second king, the contrast that Luke is painting the king of the ruler of the Roman Empire, and the king, the son of God, born to Mary, laid in a manger. The son of God is king just the same. It says she gives birth to Jesus. She gives birth to her firstborn son, and she identifies this child as the firstborn, and there's many There's much debate about what he's talking about here when he records Jesus as the firstborn. But the most simple explanation is that, remember, Joseph is in the line of David. And the inheritance of the lineage goes always to the firstborn son. And so it is important that Luke records that Jesus was the firstborn of Mary, the firstborn of Joseph. Because he is then set to receive the inheritance of the throne of David. He has a royal inheritance coming his way. And he is wrapped in swaddling cloths. Although he is set to receive a royal inheritance, he is wrapped like any other child in swaddling cloths. This is not a unique thing for the Savior. He doesn't get any special treatment. He gets wrapped up like every other baby gets wrapped up when they're born. He's born from the womb into the world, and he needs to be coddled and comforted and taken care of and wrapped in cloths. And we have this amazing contrast of the Incarnation. The incarnation is one of those doctrines in scripture that it, you can think about it, you can understand it, you might be able to explain it to someone else, but if you think about it for too long, if you contemplate it just long enough, you're going to start bending your mind in circles. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 says it this way. It says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God empties himself and clothes himself in the flesh of humans, clothes himself in the weakness of humanity, takes on the flesh of the very ones who he's coming to save. And yet he is God Almighty. As Luther says it, and it's one of my favorite uh, takes on the incarnation, he says that while he sustains the world with the very power of his hand, he also simultaneously suckles on his thumb. This is God and a child. It's amazing. And he doesn't get any special treatment. In fact, he not only humbles himself to the form of clothing himself in human flesh, he also humbles himself to the scorn and the shame of being born in the place where animals live. He gets laid in a manger, and a manger is a feeding trough. It's where all the local animals in the house would have fed out of. So not only is he wrapped in common clothes and unrecognizable, undiscernible from any other child in the area, but also he's laid in a manger. But you have to understand this. It's not a big step down to go from God to human and then human to manger. That's not the shocking thing. The shocking thing is that he goes from God to man. That step of humility is vast beyond all measure. And then we look at the step from humanity to manger and we go, that's a big jump. But the big jump happened way before that. The big jump is not a child being laid in a manger. The big jump is God becoming man. And we have here the tale of the two kings, the contrast painted between Caesar Augustus, the king who is a man who seeks to make himself God, and then we have God, Jesus, who makes himself man. And you have the two kings, Caesar Augustus, who obtains all the power he has and wants everyone in subject to him paying tribute to his authority. And he sends decrees out to make sure that this happens. And he sends out soldiers to make people pay to him. And yet God sends himself to earth to make a payment on behalf of us. And although Caesar elevates himself and renames himself, Jesus humbles himself and also takes on another name. It's not really, by the way, a tale of two kings. There's only one king. Caesar is a farce. He's a stand-in. He's a sham. A temporary placeholder and painting a picture of what a real king ought not to be like. Only Jesus is king. So after we are introduced to the two kings, Luke is going to shift scenes and he's going to start painting the picture of another contrast in this story. He's going to paint the contrast of the two different worlds. In verse 8 it says, And in the same reason there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. This is the first world that we're introduced to. World number one is the natural world. The world that is filled with all of the things that you and I understand. Animals and day-to-day tasks and activities, work and rest and some pretty mundane jobs like a shepherd taking care of their sheep. This is world one. This is, by the way, a lowly place to be. Shepherds are a lowly group in society. They're not Pharisees. They're not rabbis. They're not kings. They're shepherds. They take care of filthy animals. And in fact, the shepherds had to work all week long, so they were also considered ceremonially unclean because they couldn't partake in the Sabbath rest like the rest of the Jews could. Here are shepherds watching their sheep. This is the first world we're introduced to. And this first world is completely unaware of what is transpiring in that same region. We have God over all creation, clothing himself in human flesh, the biggest event in human history. And yet these people are completely unaware. This describes world one perfectly, by the way. People who are ignorant to the very workings of God himself. People who are unaware, who are blind to the supernatural. And then in verse 9, we're introduced to the second world. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. They were greatly afraid. The second world is the real world. The supernatural world. 
a world that is aware of God. And the reason it's supernatural, the, wor- the reason it's vibrant, is right in the middle of verse 9, that the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is the Shekinah glory, the glory that fills the temple, the glory that fills the, mount, the mountain when Moses is standing there. And Moses, who stands just in the near presence of the Shekinah glory, his face glows so brightly that the people of Israel want to stay away from him. And he has to cover his face just to be in the presence of the people. And when the Shekinah glory sets in on the camp of Israel, you remember God t- gives them all the commandments, all the laws that they have to follow so they can remain clean, so that the very wrath of God doesn't pour out on the people because you have a holy God in the midst of sinners. And yet here, world one is so blind, so ignorant to what's going on that heaven cannot help but burst forth and tell the world about what's going on because they're completely unaware. And the glory of the Lord shines forth. It bursts forth. And when it does, the shepherds are filled with great fear. And this is a good thing. We know that in Psalm, or sorry, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear is a great place to start in response to God's glory. You have people like Jeremiah the prophet who look on the very glory of God and they stand in fear and they recoil against the glory of a holy God. And we have people today who are so unaware of God, so dead to the very works of God himself, that they scorn God and they laugh him and they look at his law and they turn it aside and say, we can do without this God. He's not real. This world and this creation is beautiful, but we can explain God away and still have all these things. These are people who do not fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In verse 10, these angels have something to say. And the angel said to them, by the way, this angel isn't named, but it could be Gabriel, right? He's been on mission this whole time. Might as well keep going. Verse 10 says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The first part of the message of the angel is broken up into three parts. It's, I will bring you good news. And this good news is the same as the gospel, that there's a Savior who is born to you. And this good news is going to bring you great joy. And the joy of the response of hearing the gospel is profound. It is vast. Great joy is a right response, by the way, to the good news. And then he gives a third statement about this good news, and he says it will be to all the people. The gospel doesn't just come to the Jews. The gospel doesn't just come to the learned. The gospel doesn't just come to the academically wise. In fact, it starts off with the humble shepherds and it bursts forth from there. It will be to all the people. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is a message for all people, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. Because in Christ, there are none of these divisions. Christ breaks down every barrier that we could possibly imagine. This is a message for all people. Not just your friends, but the people you don't really like talking to. The message is for them as well. Not just for who society deems worthy, but also for whose society casts aside. Not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus, a Gentile. He's going to make sure that Theophilus knows that from the very beginning, this gospel message was for all the people. And he goes forward then in verse 11. He continues and he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. This is unlike any other statement about who God is in Scripture. In fact, these three words occur no other time together like this in the entire New Testament. He identifies this child as a Savior, as Christ, and as Lord. Those are all titles. 
Savior is the one he starts with. And that's a good place for us to start as well. Isaiah 43, 11 says, I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. Only God is a Savior. And yet here, when the angel identifies the child who is born in Bethlehem, he identifies him as a Savior. Not a Savior. The Savior. He's the Savior of the people of Israel. And God says, besides me, there is no Savior. So this child, if he's a Savior, he must be God. He's a Savior. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, he bore our sins on his body on the tree. He is a rescuer of his people. Jesus is not coming to earth to take on the likeness of man to teach morally wise lessons. He's not an ethical teacher. Humanity's lack of morality is a symptom of a deeper problem, which is our lack of an ability to understand God and his moral law. And we suppress the truth, as Paul says, not because we love suppressing the truth, but because we hate God. And it's just a symptom of a deeper problem, the fact that we are not right with God. So he doesn't come to deliver ethical lessons. He's not a preceder to Gandhi. He comes as a savior of his people because they need a savior, not more teachings. They have rabbis, they have Pharisees. They need a savior. He comes not as someone who's there to fill in the gaps of your life where you feel unfulfilled. Again, he does that, but as a byproduct of the fact that he first and foremost saves you from your very sin, which has enslaved you to begin with, he springs you free from that, and then he invites you to walk in his life, which is far more fulfilling than what you were pursuing before him. He's a savior. The second title that he's identified with here in this passage is as Christ. Christ is the name for the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who's going to stand in David's lineage. He is Christ the Lord, the anointed one of God, the holy one of Israel, the one who goes forth as the chosen one among God's people who's going to lead them out. Just as Moses was anointed to lead the people out of Egypt, Jesus Christ is anointed to lead his people out of bondage to sin. He is the one who's going to stand on the Davidic throne as ruler over the people, the Christ. And then the last title he gets here is Lord. If you want to know what Lord means, we don't even have to venture out of the text. John Piper points out that if you want to know what Lord means in this passage, look at verse 9. Lord is not some common title of a leader over the people. It is the glory of the Lord that bursts forth from heaven. It is an angel of the Lord that delivers this message. And he says that the child is also Lord. It's God, Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord is a title not of some ruler over his people. It is a title that's divine. Remember, this king doesn't change his own name. He doesn't make his own profession of glory. Caesar Augustus is about changing his own name. Jesus Christ lets angels make great his name. He lets his disciples make great his name. He is Lord. Curious. The, the converse to that in Greek is doulos, which is the most common identifier of all the people who serve Jesus. Mary says, I am a servant, a doulos of Jesus Christ in her Magnificat. I'm a servant of the Lord, the bondservant of the God. Paul identifies himself in most of his letters as Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Christ Jesus. He's a doulos, which means he has a curios, a Lord. And this is the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, no one can say that Christ is Lord except through the Spirit. And it is the most profound and distinct profession of faith that Christians have, that Christ is Lord. Yes, he is Savior, absolutely. But if he is your Savior, he's also your Lord, which means he commands all of your life. A Lord commands his servants in the way that Caesar commands his own armies. And when he makes decrees, people move. And when 
Christ is Lord when he says things we obey. When he says that your money is mine, and so you should give because it's not yours to own and possess and amass wealth, we obey. Or we turn away like the rich young ruler does, says, no, it's my money. And he says, well, then I'm not your savior. If he's your savior, he's your Lord. Which means when he says go, you say yes. You put your yes right before God. No matter what he says. No matter if he calls you to the foreign mission field. No matter if he calls you to a different job. No matter if he calls you to a hard work situation. No matter if he calls you to a hard relationship that you have to endure for his glory and for his sake. He is the Lord of your life. Which means he commands all of it. But the good news of that is that he is also your savior. And him being Lord is a natural outflowing of the fact that he first and foremost saved you from the very thing you were enslaved to beforehand. We can't identify sin as our Lord because sin is crafty and deceitful. But make no mistake, we are slaves to sin before we are set free and made slaves to righteousness. But this Jesus, this Christ, this Lord, in verse 12, the angels identify him just as we have already seen. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The shepherds hear of this sign. And remember, the swaddling cloths, that's a common thing. But what he's pointing out is that this Lord who we're announcing to you, he'll be laid in a manger, ignored, scorned. Isaiah 53 says that he had no form or likeness or beauty that we should take notice of him. And yet this is God. And then verse 13, the heavenly host cannot help but get done with their announcement. And suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host doing what they love to do, praising God. And verse 14 saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When you think of the angels and the heavenly host, don't think of what we think about today when we think of angels. Host is a term for a military army. The host of heaven come forth in Revelation 19, led by this same ruler to judge and to make war of the living and the dead. Jesus comes riding on a white throne and the heavenly host rides behind him on white horses, conquesting the earth with their leader. And here the heavenly host is peering over the veil of heaven as they're unmasking themselves. And they want everyone on earth to do exactly what they ought to do, which is to worship God. These are the soldiers in God's enlisted army, clothed in battle gear, crying out with a war cry, glory to God. Glory to God. Nobody's paying attention to Jesus, and they can't take it. That's their ruler, their God. He better be worshipped. They say, praise be to God. Glory to God in the highest. This is the song of heaven, and it's what we would repeat when we say, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. All things happen for the glory of God. In fact, the second stanza in this phrase is put in a secondary position in Greek. In your Bible, it should be indented and to the right a little bit. And it says, and on earth, peace with those whom he is pleased. First and foremost, glory to God. As a secondary event to God getting his own glory, peace to those with whom he is pleased. The message of the gospel, yes, is reconciliation with us and our Lord. But it's not for our sake that he does it. It is for his glory alone. I wrestled a lot this week with this phrase, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's what it says in the ESV. And I had no idea what to do with that because Paul says that there is no one righteous, no, not one. So how could God be pleased with man? But then I opened up an NIV and it reads like this. It says, men on whom his favor rests. Or as the NASB says it, men of his good pleasure 
These are not men who do things and that God is pleased with them. These are men on whom God's pleasure already rests. If you'll turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 10. Jesus talks about this same idea. Luke chapter 10, and we'll be in verse 5. This is when Jesus sends out his disciples to go and declare the gospel, to call sinners to repentance. And he says, starting in verse 4, I'll give you a little runway in. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. You're on a mission. Verse 5. Whatever house you enter first, say, peace be to this house. Verse 6. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. What's he talking about here? The message of the gospel is to go forth to evangelize and say, peace to you in your house. And Jesus says, if a son of peace is already there, they'll receive the peace. They'll respond to the gospel. But if not, the peace comes back to you and you go to the next house. What he's talking about here is the same thing Paul is hearing in Acts when Jesus shows up to him and says, go into Corinth, Paul. I have many people in this city who I have bought unto myself. The peace rests on those whom God already has set his favor upon. And as evangelists, again, we're not converting anyone to salvation, so to speak. We are simply discovering the gold mine of people of God whom he's already laid out in his kingdom. And we unearth them and we reveal to them glory and they respond, not because we've said anything convincing, but because God has already set his favor upon them. The message of peace is, as the NIV says, men on whom his favor rests. The message of the gospel is first and foremost glory to God and the peace goes out to those on whom he has his good pleasure set upon. Remember, Romans chapter 8, verse 8 confirms this. Sinners cannot please God. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God. God sets his pleasure on sinful man, and we simply respond. This is not for man to earn peace with God, but for God to give his peace to us. We don't go up to heaven. God brings heaven to earth in Jesus Christ with a message of peace. We can't get to heaven. We can only have peace with God if God offers it. We went to war against the sovereign king of the universe. We rebelled against his lordship. We rebelled against his leadership. And then we lost badly. And in the decimation of our rebellion, he offers us peace. And to come back into right relationship with him. And to stop our rebellious ways and stop being bent towards our sin and to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the only peace that you and I need. In fact, we can't have peace anywhere else in our lives if we don't have this peace. And there are so many today who seek to establish peace on earth without God. Having the appearance of godliness and denying its power, that's the mark of a false teacher. People who seek to establish peace across all boundary lines and relationships, so long as God is not in the picture. And yet we, who are Christians, go into all these spaces where this fake sham of peace is present. And we declare the gospel, and all we're doing is uprooting the fact that these people were in outright rebellion towards God. And they respond violently against our message of peace. Because they think they already got it. But they don't. They have no peace. And you can't have peace unless you're right with God. Because God's wrath is already upon sinners. And so we go forth bringing about a message of peace with God that is the free offer to all who would respond to it. And we do so knowing 
that we enter into enemy territory when we do that. Because the people who we go with the message of peace to have no idea how badly they've lost this fight. Jesus is coming back in Revelation 19. And the second time he comes, he comes with no offer of peace. He sent his offer of peace forward. He sent his servants to go declare his peace. And when that message gets everywhere, when his peace goes out, when that offer has been heard, unmistakably, then he comes back with his heavenly host and his armies, not as a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, but as the rider on the white horse, who from his mouth come flames of fire, and he judges and he makes war. Because his offer of peace is now rescinded, and he is the judge, not the savior. Here we have two worlds, one completely blind to God and one bursting forth with the very glory and the praise of God. And then finally, there are two responses that Luke wants to contrast here. The two responses are seen in the response of the shepherds and the response of the people in Bethlehem. Look with me at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Notice the angels leave and look with me at the text. It says, Let us go. There's no doubt there. Let us go and see the thing that's already happened. There's no questioning. They don't turn to one another and, Do you think this thing has happened? They say, Let's go. Let's go and see what the angels are talking about. I think there's a reason that Jesus shows up to shepherds to reveal himself first. Had he shown up to Pharisees, could you imagine the response? Check the literature. Check the the scriptures. Let's see if this is true. And then we might go. The shepherds say, well, let's go. It's a faithful response. They hear the good news. And they respond to the good news. They believe the good news. That's the first response, a faithful response. Let us go and see the thing which has been made known to us. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? You can't believe in Christ if you've never heard about him. But the shepherds are joyous, joyful, of the fact that this response has been made known to them. And they're not going to miss their opportunity to respond. And so, in verse 16, And they went, notice, with haste. With haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. The sign is confirmed. They go and they see Mary and Joseph. And then they make known the saying. Notice when they see the sign confirmed, their faith is strengthened. And what do they do? They go with haste. They see the child. And they made known the saying that had been told to them. They make it known. Another way to say this is they spread the gospel. They preach the Savior. They proclaim the message of peace. They declare the redemption that's coming through the child. They're announcing the birth, just like the angels did. They make known when the sign is confirmed. Notice it doesn't say they see the sign confirmed and they go back into their lives and they try to live more holy in response to God. They just try to live a more pious and, you know, worthwhile life. They don't think the gospel is going to spread through diffusion. You know, that it's going to just, they live their life and it's going to rub off on everyone around them. They know, just as the angels modeled for them, that the gospel must be declared. It must be preached. It must be stated, proclaimed. God created all of us with mouths and with minds 
for this very purpose. So we could bring glory to his name. I think this is a challenge for us because I think that most often we hear the first response and we internalize the message and it terminates right there. But notice the right response of the shepherds is they they can't keep it in. Just like heaven bursts forth when it reveals the glory of God to them, they can't keep the glory of God contained because they, they know this God. They believe in this God. They know all of the weight that's coming with this message. And they preach it. They make it known. And then in verse 18, we see the second response. And all who heard it, who hear the message that they're preaching, wondered what the shepherds had told them. That's interesting. So they're, they're at least paying attention. They're at least engaged in some extent. There's an excitement. There's a curiosity. There's a certain intrigue about the message. And then verse 19 gives us a clarifying statement. It says, but, which means whatever happened before is different after, right? But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So Mary's response is to be contrasted with the others who hear and wonder which means they have this fleeting, excited response, but it fades away by the time the dawn breaks. There's a certain excitement about the child, but it passes like a fad. But Mary treasures up all these things, pondering them in her heart. You have two different responses. You have both of them with initial excitement, all of them with this initial response of curiosity, but the response that sticks is the one that drives that initial curiosity into a deeper faith, a more profound understanding of God. And then you have the people who just wonder in amazement about this child, and they murmur among themselves, but it's not the same. And verse 20, notice the shepherds, they can't help themselves at this point. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned, and they don't just go back quietly. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I think about the story of the, the Samaritan woman who has the encounter with Jesus and he sends her away and says, don't tell anyone about who I am. And she can't even make it through her own village without telling everyone around her about this Jesus. Come and see a man who has told me all that I have ever done. This is the only right response, glorifying and praising God and making great his name. Here's the question. How do you respond? What is the response that you've had to this Jesus? Is it the response of praise and worship that leads to evangelism, proclamation, defense of the truth, advancement of the kingdom? Or is it more akin to that second response, the one that has an initial interest from a safe distance but one that with time fades, that eventually goes away. As Jesus says, is the, the trees and the, the plants that grow up and some were choked out by the thorns. And they grew up just as quick as the other plants did, but eventually their roots didn't go deep. And so they don't outlast the beating of the sun. And Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. And that it is the perseverance of the saints that Paul encourages us towards. He says, run the race as though you are to obtain the prize. He says, brothers, not that I've already obtained it, but I press on to make it my own. Just as Christ Jesus has made me his own. And you and I are in that boat where we seek to endure, to faithfully suffer, to endure long-suffering for the sake of God's glory, to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God. There's two responses. And you have a choice. Remember, there's two kings, the king of this present world and the king of all creation. The thing about the king of this present world is he's not around even for Jesus' earthly ministry. He eventually dies just as Rome eventually falls, just as all empires eventually fall. And whatever government you trust in, know that it is not the answer. It is not your salvation. Government is a fleeting king. 
But there is Christ the King who doesn't demand much of you except that you be obedient to him. And he says, take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we have two worlds, one that is blind to all of these things that are happening, completely unaware of this Christ Jesus. And yet we have the other world bursting forth with life and painting a vivid picture about who God is and his Shekinah glory. And one day, that first world, which is blind and dead, will be made new with the glory of God once again flowing freely. And there's two responses. The response of a steadfast faith and then the response of a a fleeting wonder. And you get to choose. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that the truth of your Son coming down from his throne, emptying himself, clothing himself in humanity, living a righteous life, and dying on a cross. That that message would not be one that we look upon with theological interest or intellectual curiosity or intrigue. But we would look upon that message as the very life that we need to make it from today to tomorrow. And from this week to the next. Lord, I pray that just as Jesus Christ is our ruler and our Savior, that we would submit ourselves continually to his salvation, to his lordship. Lord, I pray that if there is any here tonight who do not believe on Jesus Christ for their salvation, that they would, with great fear and trembling as the shepherds do, consider what the angel said. This is the Christ, the Savior, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have taken on this message with an initial excitement and have since faded into a certain comfort of life, that you would once again kindle that flame in our hearts to burst forth with the glory of God, just as your heavenly hosts do for all of eternity, Lord, that through your spirit you would make that known to us, that we could almost experience that on a regular basis. Lord, I pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen.